Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Over the next few weeks, we want to explore what walking with God might look like in the various stages of our lives. In our teen years, uh, if we have a young family, perhaps if you're a business person or maybe even if you're an older citizen, what does it look like to walk with God when we walk through, for example, significant transitions in our lives? Increasingly, we have many immigrants in our community of faith, people that have left the country of their birth and have made their way to New Zealand. What does it look like for those people as they try and establish their faith in a new setting? What does it look like when you've walked through tragedy? when you've lost loved ones. So what we plan to do is interact with people in our community, get them to share their experiences of walking with God through those kinds of seasons. And the question we're asking is, how can we be resilient disciples who faithfully walk with God through the various seasons and events of our lives? So my task is to kind of introduce that series this evening, give you a general introduction to the topic, and then look at two fundamental requirements uh, for walking with God. I want to begin by starting with Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. I'm reading from the Amplified Translation where Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad and easy to travel is the path that leads the way to destruction and eternal loss, and there are many who enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow and difficult to travel is the path that leads the way to everlasting life, and there are few that find it. Now, what Jesus does in this passage is he depicts two successive phases of what it means to be a believer. He talks about a narrow gate, a narrow straight gate through which we must enter, and a difficult narrow path along which we must walk. I I think the gate represents what we would call that single crisis experience where we are what we call born again. When I say something like that, there's always in the, uh, in the congregation people who have been raised in a Christian home. And when you say, you know, this, this single crisis experience that we call being born again, they say, you know what, I, Don, I was raised in a Christian home. I've loved the Lord for as long as I can remember. And I, I can't point to the time that I crossed the line in a single crisis experience. You know, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once said there are two ways to come into the Father's house and one is never to leave it. And, and sometimes people that have been raised in a believer's home and they've loved the Lord all of their lives, though they can't point to that definite moment, I would want to say to them, you know, nevertheless, you know that you've entered that gate. At some point in time, whether you were aware of it or not, you crossed the line. Sometimes people come to me having heard an amazing testimony of somebody who's been delivered from drugs and prostitution and gang life, and and they say to me, Don, I was raised in a Christian home. I I, I feel inadequate. I don't have a testimony like that. And I always want to tell them, neither did Jesus. Be be blessed that you don't have a testimony like that, for there's always the baggage that goes with it. So if you can't say, look, that was the moment I crossed the line, don't 
feel bad, let me just say that the gate is an entryway into a new realm, moving from one sphere to another, however unspectacular or spectacular it was in your case. Colossians describes it as being rescued from the powers of darkness and transformed into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there's a gate we go through and then there's a way which represents the new sphere into which the gate ushers us. It's the new kind of life that the crisis experience introduces us to. And in effect, I think what Jesus is saying here is don't separate those two things, those two phases from one another. You can't walk the way without having entered the gate. It's an exercise in futility to try and experience a new sphere that you've never entered into. You can't experience the Christian life without having first become one. But equally, to enter the gate and then not walk the way is an exercise in missing the point. The whole purpose of going through the gate is to walk in the way. It's really important that we don't view the Christian life as some kind of static condition of being saved or being a Christian. I believe and I prayed the prayer. Well, I'd want to say to you, good for you. So you've entered the gate, now walk the way. In the beginning of the church, the word Christian or Christianity had never been coined. What we now call Christian or Christianity was simply referred to as the way. So when Paul was off to Damascus to arrest people who were Christians, he said he went with letters to find people who belonged to the way. And then in Acts 19.23, about that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning Christianity. Only it doesn't say that. It says it broke out concerning the way. The very idea of walking with God, of walking in this way, demands the idea of movement, of progress and growth. It is not a static condition. Proverbs chapter 4, verse, 19, verse 18 and 19 says, the path of the righteous. Note it doesn't say the position of the righteous. This is not some static position. It is a pathway that we walk and it is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the full day and then it goes the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. So we have the path of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Both righteous and wicked are walking somewhere with someone. Nothing and nobody is static. Neither goodness nor godlessness stays in a static, unchanging position. They change. As Revelation chapter 22 verse 11 says, all doing wrong will do it more and more. The vile will become more vile. Good men will behave better. Those who are holy will continue on in greater holiness. So we are walking away, either the path of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Now, God created us, I believe, to walk with him. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Now, every indication is that this was not a one-off special event, but it was the normal course of events. God would come and walk with Adam and Eve regularly, perhaps on a daily basis. And the idea of walking with God is much more than a simple description of a physical event, a bit of, you know, a bit of a stroll, a little bit of exercise. The Hebrew word translated by our English word walk is the word halak, and it's rich with meaning. There are at least four different nuances to the idea of a walk. Firstly, it contains the idea of intimacy. 
In fact, the Hebrew word can be related to betrothal and engagement. Even in older English, when a couple were getting serious about each other, they were described as walking out together. Now, I know that that's probably not something that we would say today. We would say something like they're an item or they're keen on one another. But in Old English, they said they were walking out together. And it has this idea of developing intimacy. So there's a dimension of agreement, of concord required to walk with a person like that. You've got to be in step and in harmony. And that's why Amos says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? Rhetorical question, obvious answer is no, they can't. You're going to part company somewhere. The second idea in walking with someone is that if you walk with them, you allow yourself to be shaped and influenced by them. So Proverbs 13.20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And of course, the contrary is true as well. Thirdly, similar to the previous one, the word halak has the idea of growing and developing and increasing. So in Genesis 26, verse 13, describing Isaac, it says the man waxed great and went halak. He went forward and he grew until he became very great. So the ideas then are intimacy, that of change, that of increase. And finally, the word has the nuance and idea of worship. So in 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 8, God speaking to Jeroboam says, You have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and halak with me with all his heart. He followed me with all his heart. And that word's used to describe false worship as well. They followed halak after Baal. You could transpose the word followed and put in the word worship and it wouldn't do damage to the text. So walking with God then has all of those ideas, that of intimacy, agreement, change and increase in growth and worship. The scripture gives us a number of examples of people who were said to walk with God. So, of course, we have Adam and Eve as they walk with God in the garden. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 22 and 24, it says of Enoch, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. It seemed that Enoch walked so far with God that one day God said to him, look, you might as well come home with me. You're closer to my place than your place, and, and took him. In Genesis 6 verse 9, Noah walked with God. In Genesis 17 verse 1, Abraham was told, walk with God and be ye perfect. So with that brief introduction of what it means to walk with God, what I'd like to do in the remainder of the time that we have together is I want to talk about two fundamental requirements without which we cannot walk with God. These two things aren't suggestions. They aren't just good ideas. They are essential requirements. You don't have the requirements. You don't walk with God. And the first is faith. Okay, You might have expected that. But in the famous faith chapter of Hebrews 11, we're introduced to the men that I described from Genesis. Enoch, uh, Noah, and Abraham, among many others. And of all of them, it says, it was by faith that they were what they were and did what they did. So in verse 5 of that chapter, speaking about Enoch, it says, By faith that pleased God, Enoch was caught up and taken to heaven so that he would not have, to glimpse, uh, have a glimpse of death. And he was not found because God had taken him. For even before he was taken to heaven, he received the testimony still on record that he had walked with God and pleased him. But without faith, it is impossible to walk with God and please him, for whoever comes near to God must necessarily believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly and diligently seek him. So it says without faith, it's impossible to walk with God. 
My question, and you know, often asked in, in passages when you're studying like this, is okay, fine. I understand that faith is necessary. What does faith look like? What is faith really all about? It's such a common word. We throw it around all of the time, but if I said, what does it mean? Tell me what it means. I think a lot of people would be struggling. It's a bit like love. You know, used so widely, it dies the death of a thousand different applications. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 tells us what faith is. Again, the Amplified Bible says, Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see, and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact that which is not revealed to the senses. I hope that helps. If you're like me, you think, hmm. Maybe I'm a bit slow, but it leaves me still wondering, yeah, okay, I mean, I can get aspects of that, but, but what really is faith all about? And as I was thinking about it, I couldn't help but think of a conversation that Alice in Wonderland tells, where Alice is talking to the Mad Queen. You may recall the passage, it goes like this. Alice laughed and said, there's no use trying. She said, one can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the Queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why? Sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Is faith like that? Is, is that what faith is? Richard Dawkins would say that's exactly what faith is. Faith is belief in something in spite of clear evidence to the contrary. It's blind faith, he says. So when Paul says to us, and he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight, was he exhorting the Corinthians to forget the evidence that surrounds them and believe six impossible things before breakfast? Is this an exhortation to what Dawkins calls blind faith? And I have to be honest, I've been around the track a few times, and I've certainly seen some Christians who seem to take it exactly that way. I suspect some of you have also been in situations where faith was deemed to be not talking about or acknowledging the clear, evident realities of a particular situation. So people say, she is not sick. Don't confess that she's sick, when in fact she's not only sick, she was dying. He is not dying. In fact, he was. I will not have any negativity, which means let's not talk about this. Speak faith, which means pretend nothing is wrong. Is that what faith is? Romans chapter 4 verse 12 tells us to walk in the steps of our father Abraham. So if you want to look and see what faith really looks like, Abraham's a really good model. What did it look like in and for Abraham? Now I think many of you know the Genesis story. God speaks to Abraham, a childless nomad, and he promises him a family and a land, which is somewhat ironic. Both the family and the land look quite frankly, very unlikely in terms of how reality is shaping up. Abraham and Sarah have reached an age where childbearing is a physical impossibility. As far as the sight realm goes, this is not going to happen, period. The thing is, God had spoken to Abraham. And it's God's voice, it's God's word that births faith in our heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So God speaks to Abraham and says, I know what the reality is, but I am telling you that you will have a family and you will have land. Faced with the conflict between what God had promised and what his sight and senses told him, Abraham clings tenaciously in faith to God's word. 
Though he didn't, and we don't, walk by the evidence that our sight and senses provide when God has spoken to us, it is necessarily important that we evaluate the evidence of that sense realm correctly. In order to have biblical faith, we do not have to deny reality. We do not have to deny the sight-sense realm. We aren't asked to close our eyes as if the physical realm doesn't exist and isn't real. Faith is not misplaced mysticism, a denial of reality. That belongs to Eastern religions and Eastern mysticism. It is not biblical faith. Here's a sentence that's worth writing down. And that's the guts of what I want to say about faith. Faith doesn't question the reality of what our senses reveals, but it does question its finality. It doesn't question the reality of what we see, but it does question its finality. Abraham did not pretend that what his senses revealed to him about his and Sarah's body wasn't real. He wasn't going around repeating endlessly, I'm not too old, and she's not too old, and I refuse to confess that Sarah is past her childbearing years. No negativity negativity in my tense, thank you very much. Romans chapter 4 verse 19 says, He considered his own body, now as good as dead for producing children since he was about 100 years old, and he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. That phrase or that word he considered means to observe fully, to gaze, to persevere, to to perceive. It's exactly the same word that's used in the book of Acts where it describes Peter having a vision and seeing a whole lot of animals lowered down in a sheet. And it says in Acts chapter 11 verse 6, I looked closely. I perceived, I I considered. This is the same word that's used of Abraham. Abraham saw and considered what the sight realm told him. What he did not do was accept that as the final word. It wasn't the finality. Faith is not about refusing to admit reality. It's believing that God ultimately has the final say about reality. And Abraham clung tenaciously to God's word as the final word about the matters that have been promised to him. What faith does is says, yes, this is the evidence that the sight sense realm provides, but God. And where you put the but in the sentence is really determinative of whether you're moving in faith or unbelief. Because you can say, well, God has said, but the evidence says, or you can say, this is the evidence, but God has the final say. Faith rests on the fact that God has the final word. Now, I know this might sound negative to some, but I want to say sometimes the final word might not be this side of eternity. Abraham got his son, he got his family, but in his lifetime, this side of eternity, he did not get his land. If you know the story, the only piece of land that Abraham owned when he died was a small cave in the field of Machpelah where he buried Sarah. He did not own the land. Does that mean that God's promise didn't come through? Or was it that Abraham saw the fulfillment of the promise from a perspective that he never expected to? And I'd like to suggest to you that that's the reality. In Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse 13 and verse 39, it says many of these people died and did not see the promise. That doesn't mean God didn't fulfill the promise. It's just that they saw it ultimately fulfilled from a perspective that was different from what they first imagined. And faith is okay with that. 
Faith does not say, well, it's a bit underwhelming. I'm really disappointed. I, I kind of thought, God, you meant this. God is bigger than us, brighter than us, and he will fulfill his promises, even if it's sometimes seen from a different perspective than what we imagined. Walking with God by faith is trusting that what God has said to us will be the final word on the matter in question. And I want to suggest to you, as the scriptures say, without faith it is impossible to please him or walk with him. Second thing I want to suggest to you that we need a fundamental requirement of walking with God is to walk with him in humility. From one of the smaller books in the Bible comes a truth of incredible richness and depth. It's found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 and it says, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy or loving kindness and to walk humbly with your God. If you read that passage in context, you'll see that Prior to that verse, Micah talks about some things that are not required to walk with God. He says you don't need armloads of offering, you don't need rivers of oil, you don't need to sacrifice your firstborn. God is not looking for some extravagant, over-the-top offering from you. He's looking for humility. It's echoes of Psalm 51 when David says, you have not desired sacrifice or offering, else I would give it. What you delight in is not burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God's not looking for extravagance. He's looking for brokenness and humility. This, this, is, this isn't just an idea. This isn't um, being novel. This is a revelation. He has showed you, O oh man, so, so this is not us making up things, it's a revelation. And then it goes on to say, what the Lord requires of you. Again, not a suggestion, it's a requirement. This isn't a, a take it or leave it if you want to, I, I don't really mind. This is saying, if you want to walk with me, I've showed you what is required. And what is required is humility. Without Without it, without humility, the privilege of walking with God is off the table. If you don't fulfill the requirements, then the privilege that is on offer is revoked. So as we did with faith, I'd want to do the same with humility. So, so, so what does that mean? What is humility all about? Well, it's better demonstrated than defined. And if you want to talk about humility or look at humility, look at the life of Jesus. He is the embodiment of humility. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon, me, upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. As far as I'm aware, that's the only self-description that Jesus gives of himself. Of all of the things that he could have or might have said, he chooses this one. I am gentle and I am humble in heart. Now clearly, if you read the story of Jesus, he's not a doormat. He's not going around saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, don't look at me, I'm not important. As some people think humility does. Humility in Jesus' case was knowing who he was and what the Father said of him, and he simply agreed and rested and was secure in God's word to him. He was who God said he was. And one of the best definitions of humility that I've ever heard simply says humility is agreeing with what God says about me. And if God says, you know what, you're a miserable sinner, you respond and say, yes, Lord, I'm a miserable sinner. 
What you don't do is, oh, wow, that's a bit over the top. I mean, don't, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but, but miserable? That, that's a bit hard on the self-esteem. I mean, I don't think I'm quite as bad as you seem to imply. Can, can we sort of dialogue about this? What you do is you say, I'm a miserable sinner. And if he says to you, you are my beloved son or daughter, and I highly esteem you, you say, I am your beloved son or daughter, and I am highly esteemed. You do not say, oh, oh no, not me. Couldn't, couldn't be. I, I am nothing but your humble servant. Grovel, grovel. Humility is saying, whatever you say, Lord, whatever you say about me is true, and I am nothing more, nothing less. I agree. Sometimes in trying to understand a word, what I find helpful is going to its opposite, going to the antonym, considering the opposite so that I can get some idea of what the positive word that I'm looking at is. And the opposite of humility is arrogance or pride. And I want to tell you, we cannot walk with God in pride and arrogance. When there's unrepentant pride present in us, God will, in the words of the Old Testament, walk contrary to us. And in the words of the New Testament, he will resist us. God walks with and dwells with the humble in heart. That's why it says in Isaiah 57 verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with those who are contrite. Remember the broken spirit, the contrite heart of Psalm 51? I live and dwell with the contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. So, okay, Don, yep, I'm starting to get it. Can you just help me a little more? What does it look like in my shoes? Well, let me help you. I'm glad you asked the question. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, that wonderful chapter where it's talking about Jesus humbling himself, coming to the cross, enduring death. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not on your own interests, but on the interest of others. Let this mind be in you as it was in Christ. So you want a description of the humility of Christ, it is exactly that. Look at others and treat them better than yourself. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but look to the interest of others. And it's really interesting in that passage, the others word is used twice and it means two totally different things. In the first instance, it means others who are similar to you. Others who are like you. Humility allows us to look at others who are like us, who perhaps work in the same fields as we do, and esteem them as better than ourselves. So in shoes, this might look like one singer acknowledging and honoring another singer above themselves, rather than feeling like they are in competition and they are envious and jealous of them. It's honoring somebody who's like you. It's one chemist honoring another chemist. You know, it's easy for a chemist to honor a historian because they work in so different fields that they're not a threat to them. But when you honor somebody who's good at the same things you are doing and you don't take your own interests to heart but you lift up and prefer their interests, Jesus says, or Paul says, that's what Jesus did. That's how he walked in humility. The second others is quite different from you. People that are quite different, maybe work in different fields, maybe are of a different race. People that we would, under ordinary circumstances, dismiss of not being of interest to us because they have nothing in common with us, or even more crassly, they have nothing to add to us. 
And Paul says, Jesus didn't do that. He went around looking for those people to absolutely honor them. This is humility in shoes. This is how Jesus lived. This was his mind. If the musicians could join me, please. Pope Francis commented, the world tells us to seek success, power, and money. Paul referred that, uh, to, to that as our, our own interests. And then Francis went on to say, God tells us to seek humility, service, and love. Paul calls that the interests of others. So I like what Rick Warren says. He says, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's these kind of people, people that walk in faith and people who walk in brokenness and humility that God is drawn to. And those are two requirements if we want to walk with God in all the nuances of what it means to walk with God. Intimacy, change, growth, worship. We're called to a life of faith to a life of humility. And if we want to walk with God, we've got to cultivate those things. Invite the Holy Spirit to come and, and build faith and to work the fruit of humility in us. That, that becomes our prayer as we want to walk with God. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.